Good evening. I want to talk about marriage tonight. Marriage is about friendship, first and foremost. That's the immediate need that marriage was created to address in Genesis the second, or two. And the test says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It is not good for a man to be alone. Therefore, God invented marriage. And regardless of what people want to think about it and talk about, marriage is about the friendship between two people, the companionship, the caring and respect and protection that each, they provide for each other. The sort of friendship that God had in mind is indicated through the use of an often misunderstood phrase, a helper fit for him. The Hebrew word in question carries the idea of complementarity. Uh, it does not imply inferiority at all, matter of fact. In fact, the book of Hosea uses this word to God in relationship with Israel. Hosea 13.9 says, He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Here, God describes himself as Israel's helper. Clearly then, the word helper is in no way inferior to one who is helped. That's not what this word helper is communicating. Rather, it, it appears to be communicating intimate correspondence. God is the helper that corresponds perfectly to our needs as human beings, just as Eve was the helper that corresponded perfectly to Adam's need as a human being. That is the sort of friendship that is being pictured here. It is a friendship of co-equal others. Understanding this puts to bed two lies that our culture would press upon us, especially in this day and age. The first is the lie that men and women must be understood as being the same in order to be understood as being equal. Well, that clearly isn't the case. Genesis 1.27 states plainly that the man and woman are co-equal in value and dignity. And it states, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So God created man in his own image and woman. In the image of God he created him. Male and female. He created him. And I think that speaks volumes to the fact that we, man and woman, are equal in value and dignity. Yet we are also different. Obviously, anatomically, we're different. Pathologically, we're different. Previous to these words in Genesis, only the Pharaoh of Egypt had been described in such exalted terms. But, but now, here, every man and woman is being included in this glorious language. Every man and woman is uniquely the representative 
and resemblance of God on planet Earth. They are equal in value and dignity, and yet they are not the same. Eve corresponds to Adam. She is strong where Adam is weak. He is strong where Eve is weak. Together in love, appreciation, and unity, they are more than the sum of their individual parts. This confronts another lie in our culture today. The lie that to need another human being is a sign of weakness. No, it isn't. Needing another person is a sign of self-awareness. According to the story in Genesis, human beings are deficient by design. We are. We're not perfect. We each have strengths and weaknesses, okay? And when you join those with a partner, a wife, a husband, then your weaknesses can be replaced by your partner's strength and, and vice versa. The, the need of Adam was not the result of the fall. It was the result of God's design. God made Adam with a built-in lean that would cause him to seek out intimate community. Human beings are inherently social creatures. We are. Um, we like being liked. We, we like talking to people. And, you know, unless you're a hermit, that's what you like. Even an introvert are social creatures. We, we were quite literally made for one another. All of those phrases we smile at, such as, you complete me, this is my better half. These sayings actually speak to an oft-forgotten reality. We are indeed better together than we are apart. As the Bible says, it is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that the woman should be alone either. And that was the original reason given for the gift and blessing of marriage. In a culture of disposable everything, it is, and we do live in a disposable society, we throw away everything, quite frankly. Some people throw away lives and dignity. But in this culture of disposable everything, it is surprising to discover that some things are supposed to last a lifetime. While the Bible implies this on the very first page, it was not a common belief within the Jewish community at the time of Jesus. And in fact, this is one of the things that the disciples found most surprising about their master. Jesus stated his view on the matter succinctly by saying, Matthew 19, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It was common back then for Jewish men to give their wife a note, sending them away just because they wanted a younger woman or whatever. But clearly Jesus is saying in Matthew that marriage is forever except for sexual immorality or one of your, you know, the spouse or whatever commits adultery. I think we can all understand that and agree with that, although some don't. The book of Matthew records the reaction of the disciples. 
a group to which he himself belonged, don't forget that, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Clearly, the disciples were not used to hearing this kind of talk about marriage. Divorce was remarkably common in the Roman world and also in the Jewish world at the time of Jesus. Josephus, a Roman Jewish historian and himself a divorced man, wrote in the Antiquities of the Jews that he believed that a man was permitted to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. Thus, the Christian view on the permanence of marriage represented nothing more than a it was a significant departure from the culture of the day. According to Jesus, a marriage is supposed to last forever. The only exception he mentioned had to do with sexual immorality, uh, a catch-all phrase likely, you know, denoting, talking about any kind of sexual behavior outside the bonds of marriage, such as adultery. Most Bible readers recognize one further exception to the general rule of marital permanence. In 1 Corinthians 7, 12-16, Paul writes as follows, To the rest I say this, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In street-level English, we might label Paul's second grounds for divorce as, you know, religiously motivated abandonment. Paul is responding to a particular question, I believe, that arose out of the experiences of the early church, such as, what if my spouse and I were both pagans when we got married, but now one of us has come to faith in Christ? So that's, you know, could be a challenge. Uh, or what if the unbelieving spouse does not wish to be identified as a Christian? You know, that's what should they do now? Obviously, such a question could not have been asked of Jesus during his earthly life and ministry, which is uh, why Paul begins by saying, I, not the Lord. There is, I think, I've always thought, right, that there is something special about human beings, particularly human beings as male and female together. The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, 
male and female, he created him. Image and likeness. Those are very important words. We sometimes forget that the first people to hear these words in Genesis were most likely the wilderness generation of Hebrews during the time when Moses they went wandering through the desert for 40 years. Their cultural frame of reference was Egyptian. It wasn't Jewish. There was no Judeo-sympathetic, simpatico language at all because they had most of them had had been in Egypt all their adult life and, and all their life, period. They had been living inside Egyptian culture for the last 400 years. In Egypt, only one person was ever referred to as the image and likeness of God. And Pharaoh was that person. Pharaoh was image and likeness of God, no one else. He resembled God and represented God in a way no one else did. But in Genesis 1, 27 Moses tells the recently liberated Egyptian slave class that they are all, each of them, male and female, the image and likeness of God. They represent him and they resemble in some way that is not true of any other creature. Some scholars actually say that the most accurate translation of Genesis 1.26 would be to say that the male and female were the idols of God. Uh, that's what the word means. And, and that's why idolatry was forbidden in the second commandment, because men and women were only authorized representatives and resemblances of God on planet Earth. When people look at you, particularly when they um, look at you as male and female together, they are supposed to see something about the beauty, the wholeness, the vitality of the living God. Your marriage is supposed to witness to God's essential nature and character and also to his saving work in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said that, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. According to the Apostle, the very nature of the covenant of marriage, the intimacy, the mutuality, the love by the husband, the response from the wife, all of that was intended to say something visually and representatively about Christ and the church. Your marriage is a multi-point gospel sermon. Your marriage is a witness. Whether you like it or not, your marriage is saying something about God and about the love of God in Christ. What your kids believe about God will largely come from what they believe about you. So it matters who and how we are as married people. Perhaps the most surprising thing the Bible says about marriage is that it should not and will not be experienced by everyone. In the Old Testament, there are many heroes of the faith who were unmarried. 
Some were unmarried because God forbade them to be married. We think of Jeremiah, for example. Others were unmarried because they were made eunuchs by hostile foreign powers. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come to mind. At least, and actually I just read this uh, a couple days ago about Daniel. Jesus spoke about these things in Matthew 19 in answer to the disciples' response to his teaching on the permanence of marriage. He said, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Here, Jesus seems to be saying that God gives the grace to serve him in whatever capacity he calls people to. If a person is called to celibacy, then God gives grace for that. If a person is called to marriage, God gives grace for that as well. The disciple must receive what God gives and do what God requires, whatever that is. The Apostle Paul was evidently influenced by that teaching. And in his chapter-long discussion of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. Paul had the gift of celibacy. Whether he had been married and then widowed or whether he had never been married, we don't know. What we know is that he was living as a celibate during his ministry as an apostle. He recommended celibacy for the purposes of dedicated ministry to those who had been given the gift. But as he says in verse 7, not all have been given the gift. Some have been given the gift of marriage. God will give you the grace to serve him and obey him in whatever calling he assigns. Jesus was the most human human who ever existed, and he never married. You can be all that God has called you to be without ever experiencing the gift of marriage. Some people will witness to the goodness and glory of God through covenant marriage. And some will witness to these things through their joyful embrace of celibacy and sufficiency in that. Each has his own gift from God one of a kind and one of another. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Amen.